Good morning. My name is John. I'm one of the pastoral assistants here at Embassy Church. Um, this morning we're going to read through and discuss Psalm 16, but before we do, I would like to talk about something that's been on everyone's minds lately. Coronavirus. So this has been the topic of discussion in our country for the last year and a half, but this is obviously not a national issue. This issue is international. The whole world is talking about this. The entire planet is addressing the deadliness of this virus, the doom and gloom of COVID-19. But maybe there is something just as deadly about this pandemic that no one is really talking about. Isolation. Social isolation. Here's an excerpt published by the JAMA Health Forum earlier this year, co-written by a licensed clinical social worker at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. An abundance of research has demonstrated that no matter the advancements in medicine and healthcare, the health of individuals and communities will not improve if these root cause social factors are not addressed. The coronavirus disease 2019, COVID-19, pandemic is highlighting one of these factors, social isolation. Social isolation, defined as an objective deficit in the number of relationships with and frequency of contact with family, friends, and the community, is associated with increased rates of loneliness and suicide, hypertension, and other physical health effects. Demonstrated to be as dangerous to health as smoking 15 cigarettes per day, social isolation has been identified as worthy of being a public health priority. Articles from the Health Affairs Journal and the Psychiatry Research Journal are labeling our self-imposed, self-isolating situation as a double pandemic or a dual pandemic. You know, some of you have felt both sides of this pandemic, feeling afraid of physical death and feeling sad because you feel so alone. Little to no joy because in social isolation, people are not close and maybe as a result, feel that God is not close. Almost in a timely fashion, Psalm 16 provides a solution to how we approach and should approach a double pandemic. Psalm 16 specifically addresses the, these emotions of sorrow and insecurity and aloneness from a feeling of abandonment, but also joy of closeness, of, of also joy and closeness from God and from God's people. So please follow along with me as I read Psalm chapter 16. A Miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. 
In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is the word of the Lord. All right. Here is the main idea of Psalm 16. And I felt it appropriate to rhyme since we are, after all, in the Psalms. So here's the main idea of Psalm 16 and my message this morning. Our joy is here because our God is near. Our joy is here because our God is near. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to see how Psalm 16 reinforces this main idea, verse by verse, each verse at a time, starting with verse 1. A miktam of David, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So this is the one and only time in this psalm where David makes a request. God, preserve me, keep me, watch me, guard me, protect me. God, keep me safe. And then he says, in you I take refuge. And so when you take refuge in something, you see a threat, a danger, and then you find security to your, in your safe place. And that's where you run to. It, the image is you know, of a small boy who sees a strange man and then stands behind his father's leg. Or a dog who stares out the window, experiences lightning and thunder, and then bolts into his doghouse. So the question has to be asked, what is David afraid of? What is David running from? Why is he taking refuge in God? So the good news is, is that David tells us, but maybe to some of our frustration, he doesn't tell us right away. He doesn't tell us right away. He wants to focus on God for a bit before he tells you. So hold that thought and stay with David as we continue to see what he says in verse 2. So verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I'm sure many of you have noticed this, but the first Lord there and the second Lord there look quite different. The first Lord is in all capital letters and the second Lord is not. And, and that is not a misprint. Our God has a name. Our God is God, but our God has a name. It's the same as all of us. I am a human, and you can call me human. Hey, human, go take out the trash. But I'm also John. That's my name. So you could also say, hey, John, go take out the trash. God is God, but God has a name, and his name is Yahweh. And when the Hebrew text presents God's personal name, most English translations today, out of honor and out of reverence and out of respect, won't render the transliterated letters of his name, Yahweh. Instead, they'll uh, write in Lord with all capital letters. So that's, that's, that's what you see there. And the second Lord in lowercase letters just means Lord. Ruler, master. But, but don't let this escape you. David, who is the king of a powerful nation, says to Yahweh, you are my Lord. Uh, last May for a few weeks, I was down at Fort McCoy in Wisconsin as a part of my Army Reserve training. And uh, I happened to come across and have a discussion with a U.S. Army Brigade commander. Um, for those who don't know, a brigade commander is typically a colonel who com can command up to 5,000 soldiers. 
And as you can already get the sense of this, you know, there's a lot of responsibility there as a, as a brigade commander. There's a lot of authority and power and responsibility. And he told me that his Christian faith is important to me, but one of his biggest struggles as a brigade commander and as a Christian is big-headedness. He confessed that he, he, with so much authority in his, in, his, in his day job, he can easily allow himself to think he was superior to others, his, his subordinate soldiers. And he has his brigade chaplain remind him on a weekly basis, among the other things they talk about, that he is just a man and that he is a sinner like everybody else. King David, who knows that he's the most dominant and powerful person in the entire country who can kill or take whomever or whatever he wants, recognizes that even with complete, total, absolute authority, there is one who has greater authority than him, Yahweh. And as he continues in verse 2, he says, I have no good apart from you. And here, I just want to clarify that when he says good, he's not speaking in the moral sense, right? As a matter of right and wrong, holy or unholy. But he's speaking it more in terms of the pleasant sense. A good a benefit, prosperity, happiness, something desirable or something necessary in your life. You know, having a, having a place to live, you know, that's not really a matter of being holy or unholy, but it's good. God gave you a place to live. Uh, for the most part, eating to stay alive is not a matter of being right or wrong, but it's good. God gave you food to eat and enjoy. King David states that everything good is from God. I need to make the point here that verse 2 is one of two verses in the psalm that summarizes this psalm, the main idea. All good, all good, to include joy, comes from the closeness of God. And in keeping with this idea, David tells us in the next verse something that else that brings him joy. Verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Here in verse 3, it shows the first time David feels a positive emotion in this psalm. What is it? Delight. And I'm sure if you ask David, you know, he would tell you that, that he delights in God. But here in verse 3... He delights in who? In the saints and the excellent ones. And I know at this point, maybe you're thinking this. Who are these people? Who are the holy ones, the saints, the excellent ones? Who are these people in verse 3? I would make the argument that those who live in verse 3 are those who say and believe verse 2. See, David implies here that those who acknowledge that all their goodness doesn't come from them is holy and excellent. But that's not all of it. These holy and excellent ones say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. You know, at the start of this message, we talked about social isolation during a time of COVID-19. Our aloneness and farness contribute to our depression and even pose suicidal risks. But maybe we learn something about this here in verse 3. Maybe our delight and joy in God are directly related to our delight and joy in God's people. So I have a question to ask you all. Have you noticed a decline in your joy in God recently? Maybe for some of you, this decline isn't so recent. 
have you noticed a decline in your joy in God? And if so, if so, have you also noticed a decline in your joy of God's people? Are you experiencing a lack of joy in God because you are experiencing a lack of joy in God's people and fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? You know, one excuse many of you have for why you don't draw near to others is because you think you're a mess. You are too much of a mess. But guess what? We're all a mess. We are all one big mess. And God still loves you, and he fuels our love for one another. So this is my call to you, Embassy Church. Experience God's presence through God's people. Spend time with people after church events. Invite people over for a meal or go out for a meal or just grab a cup of coffee or just hang out. Announce an open invitation to people you don't know through the roundtable. You can contact me about that. Call someone out of the blue and just pray. Get to know them, see where they're at in their faith. Find joy in one another. Our joy is here because our God is near. David says he delights in those who love God in this verse, but he also addresses the sorrows of those who don't love God in the next verse, verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So I need you to notice something here. The word sorrows there is plural. It's not sorrow but sorrows, and these sorrows multiply. Who are we talking about? Those who worship idols, false gods, they have multiplying sorrows. According to the American Enterprise Institute, the percentage rate of self-identifying Christians surveyed in the United States has been on the decline since the 1960s. Simultaneously, the rate of suicide and ongoing depression has been on the rise since the 1990s. Just a generation later. Correlation is not causation, doesn't prove causation, but it could be an indicator. Some of you here are believers, struggling with severe depression and grief. Some of you are mourning right now, experiencing bereavement and loneliness and sadness, and for some of you, deep sadness. And I'm not saying that you're not a true believer because you're going through these difficult times. I don't believe that God worshipers are always happy and uh, idol worshipers are always sad. What I am saying is that the sadness of those who love God in verse 3 is, are different than the multiplying sorrows of those in verse 4. Those in verse 3, the saints and the excellent ones, believe in verse 2 that there is no good apart from God. And when in need, do what David did in verse 1. Call out to God for his intervention and seek refuge in him. I mean, if you hurt your leg, do you go see a dentist? If you have a toothache, do you go see a podiatrist? Verse 4 here is like a man who has a severe toothache who then finds a crazy person in a shady garage offering him to pull out all of his teeth with a pair of rusty bolt cutters. I'm no doctor, but I would think that that would make his situation so much worse. 
I mean, this, I, this view, this image is so offensive. David says he won't even say their names. And by there, he doesn't just mean the false gods. He's referring to those who follow them. Um, some of you this morning have sorrow. And others of you have sorrows. And some of you have multiplying sorrows. And I would encourage you to seek help from our uh, church elders, Pastor Phil and Pastor Kenny, or tell a fellow believer at Embassy Church. But you have to ask yourselves this question. As you're experiencing those multiplying sorrows, is there a God that you're running after? And if so, what drink offerings of blood are you offering? Are you sacrificing so much energy to make more money? Are you sacrificing so much of your time just to maintain a good appearance? Are you sacrificing so much of your money to live a more comfortable life? If Yahweh, if not Yahweh, who is your God and what drink offerings of blood are you offering it? Joy is not found in our own chosen portions. Joy is found in the Lord. Let's read verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Okay, so in verse 2, David focuses on God. In verse 3, David focuses on those who love God. In verse 4, David focuses on those who don't love God. And here in verse 5 and 6, David brings his attention back on God and exclaims how good God is in his life using material imagery. And what are those two material uh, images? Chosen portion and cup. I'll briefly describe what David meant by these two items. Okay, so chosen portion. This language of chosen portion triggers in the mind of the original Jewish readers uh, defining and receiving territory, land. So like in the book of Numbers where God chooses a portion of land for each tribe of Israel, David's chosen portion of land in Psalm 16 is God. In verse 6 where David mentions lines, right? Those lines are not lines in a play. Those lines are, those lines are boundary markers, borders to define the territory. So that's chosen portion, but what about cup? David also calls uh, God his cup. But he then says that the cup holds his lot, which is just another word for portion, his everything, his goodness, the territory, the land. And the image is that God gives you everything good and then like a full cup contains everything good that he has given you. So in other words, at least what I, what I identified in this, in this verse is that you cannot lose your goodness because you're not the one holding on to it. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And, and yes, a, a chosen portion of something is not everything. But when God is your chosen portion, he is your everything. David here is describing what the main idea looks like to him. God as his chosen portion and his cup is his joy because near is his God. And before I read the next two verses, verses 7 and 8, I would just like to preface them 
uh, by saying that you're going to see the author do three things. You're going to see three things in the next two verses. You're going to see the, the actor, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the author acting. You're going to see God acting. And then you're going to see the results of God's actions. You're going to see the author act. You're going to see God act. And then you're going to see the results of God's actions. So let's read verses 7 and 8. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. So I bless God. God gives me counsel. And his counsel is so effective, I continue to be instructed by his counsel through my heart into the night. I set God before me. God comes to my right hand, and his presence is so sufficient. My entire being is firm and unshakable. I mean, that is how real God is, and that is how real God needs to be to you. Your life changes after you meet him. Focusing on the word bless there in verse 7, the word bless in this form as a verb only occurred two other times in the previous psalms that we've covered through the series. Um, in Psalm chapter 5, verse 2, it reads, You bless the righteous, O Lord. In Psalm chapter 10, verse 3, it reads, The wicked blesses the one greedy for gain. So, chapter 5, verse 2, God blesses the righteous. In chapter 10, verse 3, the wicked bless the wicked. But here in Psalm 16, chapter, uh, uh, verse 7, I bless God, or we bless God. Does that, does that seem odd to you all? We usually speak of God blessing us, but we hardly speak of us blessing God. So how do we do that? How do we bless God? I'm going to read a few verses from the Psalms, and I want you to pay attention to the words co-located with the word bless, words like praising and singing and giving thanks. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Give thanks to him, bless his name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord. For those who want to reference those verses later, uh, it, that's uh, Psalm chapter 34, verse 1. Chapter 96, verse 2, 100, verse 4, and 104, verse 35. We bless God by praising him. And I would like to ask you all two questions. Do you bless God in your happiness? When you have so much goodness going on in your life, do you sing and give thanks to and praise God? Question number two. Do you bless God in your deep, multiplying sorrows? When you have so much sadness and internal suffering, intense internal suffering, do you sing and give thanks to and praise God? Do you praise your Father in heaven in your sadness? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I know this sounds difficult, uh, but when you feel like you're shaking, when you feel like you're being shaken by the fallenness of this world, set God before you and bless him. And I know some of you are thinking, John, that's great, 
but can you be more specific? What does that look like in my life? Bless God, setting God before me, can you be more specific? So yes, I'll give you two very specific applications on what that looks like. Here's the first one. Every night before you go to bed, bless God. Thank him for the goodness that he has gifted you. If you're single, bless God on your own, or if you would like, reach out to someone you trust and bless God with him or her on, uh, over the phone. That's not weird. That's not awkward. That is consistent with the entire book of Psalms. If you're married, bless God with your spouse. Thank him and praise him for who he is. If you are with your kids or parents, bless God together. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So that's specific application number one. Here's number two. How do I set God before me like David in verse eight? One way you can do this is by going to church every Sunday. I know what you're thinking. John, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. And I, I, you're right, I agree with you. But you're not going to church because you have to go to church. You're going to church to experience God's presence through God's people. This may be difficult or uncomfortable at first, but delight in God by delighting in his messy, not altogether people. You will be surprised by the results of those two specific applications if you apply them to your life. Bless God before you go, uh, before you go to bed every night. Go to church every Sunday. Something might happen to your heart. Okay. So we're at verse 8, and at verse 8, we reach a critical point in Psalm 16. David acknowledges here that after meditating on God and reflecting on his closeness, he no longer feels shaken, or at least he won't feel shaken. He won't be shaken. What's the effect of meditating on God's presence? What's the point, the consequence of David's reflection of God being so near? What did God give to David after all this? Verses 9 and 10. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. I mean, you, you can't help but feel so happy for David. He's so joyful. He feels so secure. It almost seems like God answered his prayer in verse 1. In verse 9. Preserve me, O God. Verse 9, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices. But he says, my flesh also dwells secure. Secure from what? We asked this question earlier when we were addressing uh, verse 1. What is David afraid of? What is he running from? The most dominant and most powerful person in his entire country, what is he afraid of? Verse 10, he's afraid of Sheol, realm of the dead. So Sheol literally means realm of the dead. Spiritually speaking, it's the place where people go into the next life. Um, in a more figurative sense, when you read it mostly in the Psalms, it's so, when they talk about Sheol, it's really just a reference to physical death. Going to Sheol, you die. In a more physical sense, going to Sheol means going to the grave, becoming, going into the dirt, into the earth. 
So you have Realm of the Dead, death, going into the grave, but you get the idea of what Sheol is here. David tells us in verse 10 that he wants God to preserve him from what he wants him to preserve him from in verse 1. Death. David is saying, God, I don't want to die. Lord, I don't want to die. Save me from death. I don't know if you know this, but David died. David said, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, but God eventually did. How do I know? David is still dead. So before I address the second half of verse 10, I first need to read to you 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. So during David's rule, God tells David he's going to die and that God would raise one of his offspring up and establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And in the immediate context, that sounds like King Solomon, who was David's son. But Solomon's kingdom was destroyed after his death by two foreign nations. So who else could God be referring to here? And I'll read to you 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled... And you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So that's a good segue into the last half of verse 10. David says, You will not let your holy one see corruption. And I know from the flow of the psalm, it sounds like David is talking about himself. But I will tell you all, Embassy Church, he's not. David is not talking about himself. David here is talking about the Messiah. He's talking about the Christ, the one who God would send to save the world. David is talking about Jesus. Uh, There's a good rule to follow when you're trying to understand the Bible, and it's this. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Is there scripture that interprets Psalm 16? The answer? Yes. Yes, there is. Please turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. After Jesus resurrected, ascended into heaven, and sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in believers, Apostle Peter preached the first Christian sermon ever recorded. And he quotes Psalm 16. I say it is a rarity yet a privilege to read a portion of someone else's sermon in your sermon. But his sermon is really good. His sermon is so much better than this one. And so I'm just going to read you a portion of his sermon. Don't, please don't zone out. Listen to every word that Peter says from uh, verse 22 to 33. It's important. Pay attention to Peter's logic and exposition of Psalm 16 and see if you catch some good news in there. So I'm going to read you. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 33, the first ever Christian sermon after Jesus' ascension. This is Peter speaking to a large group of Jews and non-Jews, those who are traveling, those who uh, already live in the, the Jerusalem area. And here's, here's, here's Peter, after being uh, uh, dwelt by the Holy Spirit, after Pentecost, he preaches the sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, 
as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Just what a great triune gospel-centered sermon, Peter. Thank you. Peter is not the only apostle who saw Jesus Christ in Psalm 16. You heard this morning uh, Brian Sprouse reading Acts 13. That was Apostle Paul preaching and expositing Psalm 16. And he also saw Jesus Christ in Psalm 16. So, what's the good news that Peter and Paul are getting at? They both are talking about this good news. What is it? It's the good news of Jesus Christ. Peter shared the good news. Paul shared the good news. And now here's my attempt at sharing the good news to all of you here this morning. You and I are created beings, created by the one and only creator, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The triune God created everything, and he created everything good. To add to the goodness, God created the first humans, Adam and Eve. God saw his people made in his image and saw that it was very good. Even in the very goodness, our first mom and dad chose to not be good to God. They chose to not be holy ones, excellent ones, before a holy and excellent God and delighted not in him, but their own sins, their disobedience. After Adam and Eve brought the first ever pandemic into the world, they socially isolated themselves from God. They not only introduced the first pandemic, they introduced the first double pandemic, death and social isolation. Human beings since then have ran after other gods, offering drink offerings of blood to them while multiplying their sorrows, rejecting the pleasant places and beautiful inheritances that God offered them. Mankind, us, all of us, chose death over God and as a result, continued to die and corrupt our bodies to the grave. In this mess, this one big giant mess, God the Father sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come down in the form of a man, lived as the holy and excellent one that we should have lived, blessed God in the way that we should have blessed God, and he died on the cross alone and abandoned to save us from our sins, our spiritual death. 
Jesus rose from the dead. He did not allow himself to be abandoned by Sheol. He was not corrupted by physical life nor physical death and ascended into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Now God, the Holy Spirit, has manifested himself to us and lives in our souls as we experience supernatural joy in the midst of great sorrows. Isn't that good news? In verse 4, the pagans gave their drink offerings of blood to gods. But God, Yahweh, gave his drink offering of blood to us. Fellow believers, who is his drink offering of blood? As I stated earlier in my introduction, suicide is on the rise. Depression, on the rise. Loneliness, on the rise. Multiplying sorrows on the rise. I don't know if you knew this, but September is National Suicide Prevention Month. Maybe you have been swept up by the waves of this world. Maybe you feel like, maybe you feel like you're drowning. Maybe today, Psalm 16 is it's just too happy right now. It's, it's too happy of a psalm. And Psalm 16 is a psalm of joy, but it didn't start out that way. How does David begin the psalm, the miktam? Preserve me, God. So I, I think a good place to start is knowing that Jesus Christ loves you very much and is a lot closer to you than you think. Like the closeness of a loving parent when a child is scared, like the closeness of a caring spouse when the other is having a bad day, like the closeness of a good friend when someone feels alone. Jesus Christ closes himself right next to you, and his presence alone offers you something the world can never give you, something you could never attain for yourself. Even a double pandemic cannot separate you from the love of Christ. You may be concerned for your life. Jesus is the path of life. And with that, I would like to conclude this message by concluding uh, with, with the conclusion verse of Psalm 16. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Earlier I said, Verse 2 is one of two verses that summarize Psalm 16. David restates the main idea here in verse 11. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever and ever and ever more. Embassy Church, because God is near, our joy is is here. Uh, please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, just, just thank you so much for your goodness and thank you for your joy and your closeness. When we feel so sad, you bring us joy, Lord. When we feel so alone, you're right there. Lord, for those who feel like they're just not ready yet to go to church, just not ready yet 
to 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 live out Psalm 16 to experience it. Please, Lord, we beg you, preserve them, keep them safe before you bring them home. In your Son Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.